Hello everyone. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett. This is the Thriving Minds podcast and I'm excited today to have Lydia Pearson with us, a designer, a teacher, and for many um, in that are living around Brisbane and Queensland know her as a fashion icon. She doesn't like to call herself that, but that's how I see her. And um, we want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Selena. It's so exciting to be here. So would you like to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yes, um, I'll start at the very beginning. I was born in England and we were 10 pound poms. I came to Australia when I was six and have lived here almost ever since. Grew up in Toowoomba, came to university in Brisbane and then lived in Paris for a little while, lived in Sydney for a few years. And I did an arts degree at UQ majoring in French. I had a double French major in French literature. And I always imagined that I would go and do something very academic and probably end up just teaching what I'd learned in Paris. But secretly, I really wanted to be a fashion designer. And I thought then that maybe I would go to fashion school while I was in Paris, but I had absolutely no idea how to get in. And then when I realized you needed a portfolio and I had nothing, I came back to Australia thinking I would make my portfolio. But in fact, I ended up just making clothes for friends while I lived in Sydney and worked in the public service and had a very fabulous time. And then when I really decided that that was what I was going to do, um, my then partner and I moved back to Brisbane because it was something that we knew and there was a big support network there. And that's sort of how it started. I mean, it started from totally the wrong end of the stick, really. And you have a collaborator too when you were first starting. Uh, when I first started, I actually was working on my own and then with my husband. And then about 10 years after that, I got together with Pamela, Pamela Easton, who became my business partner. And that was after I'd had a couple of kids and was finding it all a little bit of a struggle. My husband had started a restaurant, God bless his soul. And <laughs> what was it called? Which it one? was called The Mercury. And it was um, 1988, the year that Expo was on. Uh -huh. And it was in South Brisbane. So it ran that really exciting, heady time when there were so many people in Brisbane and particularly in that part of Brisbane where they never had been before. But, you know, a restaurant a baby and an under two-year-old and a fashion business is not really a formula for success so when Pam moved back from Sydney and we decided to work together it was fantastic to have someone else to share everything uh -huh. with. Um, so uh, that's thank you for that introduction that's really says a lot about your background and how it's inspired a lot of your design I would say like what, what inspired your designing? Like what's that, do you know where that came at from? At the beginning? Yeah. At the, at the beginning? Yeah. Well, because I was a complete Francophile nut, my first inspirations were all this kind of world that I'd confected around what it was to be French. And so in the 80s when everyone had big big shoulders and shoulder pads and power dressing. I was making little sort of 1920s silk dresses and very romantic, very, very girly clothes. <laughs> um, but later it evolved, of course. And when Pam and I got together, she was very interested in world history and 
we both were really interested in the history of dress. And that really was what informed us. And then when we started going to India through a mutual friend to have some embroidery done, we just both fell in love. And from then on, that was a huge, huge influence on our work, not, not totally aesthetically, but the opportunities to use the skills that were just part of everyone's culture in India was just so exciting back in the early 90s when everything had been minimal and grey and brown. And all of a sudden we went into this world that was just a myriad of mirrors and hot pink and wild embellishments and sequins. And we were really lucky because we were very early into that much more decorative kind of clothing. And the world sort of happened to follow along. And so that was really how we made our name. And then we started selling the clothes. We, we were already selling to stores around Australia, but then we decided to go to Paris and we started selling our clothes, not as a runway show, but during Fashion Week in Paris, we took a hotel room and just had private appointments with buyers, very, very low key, yeah. but we couldn't possibly have afforded to do it any other way. And we were also, again, extremely lucky that we met a couple of very influential buyers. We actually met them at the first Australian Fashion Week and one was from London and one was from Hong Kong. And they encouraged us to come to Paris for the next season. And then it's sort of like a club. Those, they're very, very um, prominent stores, very influential stores. And once they sort of give you their seal of approval, then they've got all these friends who have stores in other parts of the world who sort of follow suit. And so we got entree to this club the first time we went to Paris and we were just so lucky. We had all these amazing people knocking on our door, including Bergdorf Goodman. Wow. And so when was that? It, what year was that? That was 1998. Wow. Yeah. So that so happened very, very quickly after yeah. that. Turning point. But that the was like how many years after you'd started. Uh, it was 10 years after Pam and I had started, but it was 18 years after I'd started. So, yeah, we were an overnight sensation and it only took 18 years. Yes, everyone. I think that's a that's a nice point for us to talk about, would you say? I but think so. Like, yes, like I mean, what, first, what is in the... <laughs> the first piece of advice I give my students about being an independent designer is you just have to be prepared to be really poor for a really long time and don't give up your day job <laughs> because it's such a difficult world to break into and it's so precarious. And if you're trying to work as a small independent designer, I mean, back then trying to do it in Brisbane was just, I realise now a very, very uphill battle because there were no suppliers here. There weren't very many manufacturers here. So I relied on ladies who sewed from home, who'd been dressmakers and wanted to do you know, something a little bit more. And I used to put advertisements in the Courier Mail for ladies who could sew and ladies who could knit. And it was such a grassroots really tiny little business and you know I remember one day I was doing this really complicated knitting and the only lady I knew who could make the first sample was retired and she lived in a caravan in Scarborough 
and I had to drive out to Scarborough and sit with her in the caravan while she got the hang of what it was I wanted her to do because I didn't have any technical, real technical knowledge for knitting. But, you know, those things stay with you. And then on the way back from Scarborough, I found this house that was completely covered in shells. It was just so beautiful. And I've got a photograph of it, still one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I never would have found that if I hadn't had to drive out to Scarborough. It's yeah. very different to you know, sitting in an office and punching away on the computer and sending off an order to China. Yeah. And would you say that all of these things inspired your designing and your uh, the way it evolved? Oh, absolutely. It not just inspired it, but actually really dictated it because there were things that I would like to have been able to do that I couldn't do because there wasn't the skill base to do it. So we had to find out another way to do it. And my first sample machinist was a Sicilian lady who had been taught by the nuns and everybody in the convent learned how to sew, well, every girl in the convent learned how to sew and to do exquisite embroidery. And she just took it for granted that you would make a buttonhole by hand because it looked nicer. And she was so fast that she could nearly do it as quickly as doing it on the sewing machine. And for me, that was just such a joy because I'd always loved old clothes and loved traditional sewing methods. And those things all inform you. It's not so much that you get inspired by you know, some esoteric idea or a French poem or something about nature, but, boy, did I get inspired by the handmade buttonholes. Amazing. Um, so... Would you like to talk a little bit about um, how, what, like, what were the strategies you used through the times that potentially you didn't want to do it anymore because it was really difficult? I think that's the thing we like to talk about a lot about courage, uh, determination. Um, I'm sure there's many times that you thought this is obviously not meant to be the path for now. Oh, my goodness. When Pam and I were first getting together and I had the babies and Robin had started the restaurant, we had a house, an old house out on Wynnum Road, huge old place that was completely like a barn. It just hadn't been renovated at all. And we bought it because it had such a huge living room that we could fit our cutting table in it. So we brought all the production. We had had a studio. We brought the production home. And interest rates at that time were like 23%. And our bank manager was so worried that he used to pop in to see us on his way home. <laughs> I think he was going to be really expected that one day he'd come and everything would be gone and we'd just have scarpered. But, you know, yeah, financially it was just ridiculous. And if you were really a sensible business person, you would have packed it up so many times. But it was just what we did and what we loved and we were really young and really, really naive, I think. We also had really supportive friends and family and we didn't mind not having much money because we'd never really earned any, you know, we'd been students, then we'd, I'd lived overseas and we'd been public servants and spent every cent that we earned for a year going out to nightclubs. And so we didn't have this expectation that we were going to really make very much money. And that certainly wasn't the motivation. And I think Pam was a lot more strategic. Yeah. Um, I assume that uh, compared to now where all the kids are really moulded against those kind of ideas from a young age now, I would say. 
like against that, the idea of of not making money yeah like i th- feel like a lot of that a lot of what we do now across every platform is to create more safety and try and encourage people into professions because they can make money for example like i mean i see a lot of that anyway i'm just wondering what you see on the no i think that's true i think that's really true but by the same token in the last three years particularly i don't know that it necessarily coincided with COVID, or it did coincide with COVID, but i don't know that that was really the catalyst there are a lot of young people who are really turning their backs on that and really questioning their values and what they want for their life. And I don't know if it's because I teach into an arts sector, but a lot of my students just want to be happy. They just want a nice life. They want an authentic, honest life. A lot of them want to travel and that's been impossible. And a lot of them are banding together and starting little tiny micro businesses here in Brisbane. And it feels to me like it's come in a full circle. You know, we went so far away from that and everything got to be so focused on being global and growing and what you could do with the internet. And here are these kids making these little tiny businesses. And a lot of them are completely reliant on internet, on the internet and on online sales and Instagram platforms. And that's allowed them really to stay where they are and find an audience broader than just their local audience, but still they've got this local life. And that was something that I always wanted. I always wanted community and friends and that feeling of belonging far more than I really wanted any kind of success. In fact, I would say that the bigger Pam and I got and the more terrifying the numbers became, the harder it was to maintain any kind of equilibrium. Yes. Um, It's one thing to earn a lot of money, but it's another thing to be responsible for 70 people and their income and responsible to all these suppliers for huge terrifying amounts of money and not really knowing whether it's going to work out or not yeah that's the thing about that business isn't it it's very seasonal and you are at the whim of people's seasonal and it's very faddish and very precarious it's dependent on the the exchange rate it's dependent on shipping it's dependent on just so many uncontrollable outside influences on top of whether you've done a really good collection or not. So would you say, are you glad you did that, though, to experience it so you can know that both sides of the equation? I am. Yeah. I am, but it took a huge toll, you know. My husband and I lost our house. Pam and her partner lost their house at the end because things went so pear-shaped and we didn't want to be one of those people who just stops and doesn't have to pay everybody we were determined to pay everybody at the end so that that was huge and yeah in the end was the turning point would you say what why did that happen and what was the change it was uh, it was well it was the gfc it was the gfc really 
So that's around 2008. People, people stopped traveling. The American buyers had no money and they were the ones who were really, really wealthy. Uh -huh. And then the war in Iraq was also a huge factor. I mean, it's, it's all these really indeterminate things that have actually nothing to do with your own business that, that can make you just implode. So um, if you don't mind, because I think this is really important conversation too, because to show what happens, how you can, how far you can go and how far you can come back by getting up every day still. Yeah. Well, my mental health suffered very, very badly over that period. Yeah, and we all have these parts in our life too, don't they? Don't we? Yeah, and I think more and more people are starting to talk about it. I don't know how I went to work every day, but I somehow did. When I look back, I was so unwell and so is fragile. This, is this before and, it came down or during, after? Was it the trigger um, it, it or was, was it building up because it of the stress of the job? Sort of before and around it. Actually, by the time it finished, I was really resilient and strong. Yeah. I, I, once we decided that we didn't want to go on and that it wouldn't be fair to go on, it was actually just a matter of trying really hard to do the right thing and the more we could do the right thing the better we both felt I think and so at the end of it and also selling our archive you know we sold it to um, an investor an art collector and philanthropist and then he donated it to the Museum of Brisbane and knowing that there was going to be that legacy I think was actually the biggest saving grace and then the next saving grace for me was that I had a couple of friends who worked at QUT and I realised that I was going to have to have a job. And I'd always been interested in the idea of teaching but, you know, thought that I couldn't do it because I don't have a degree for teaching. I've just got an arts degree. Anyway, I started working very part-time at QUT and just immediately loved it and felt that I had quite a lot that I could contribute. And here I am. Wow. Five years later, now I'm full-time teacher. Yes, QUT is very lucky to have you, so thank you for coming. Oh, I feel I thank goodness every day because I've never had a job before where someone pays me just to come to work and gives <laughs> me sick pay and holiday pay. I just cannot believe my luck. <laughs> Maybe we should spread the word. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think unless you've actually been in business with a lot, a lot of academics, haven't necessarily run their own businesses. I know there are plenty of people who have, but unless you've been that vulnerable, you can't really appreciate just how amazing it is to be this secure. And for me at this time in my life, it's just an absolute gift. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, so what would you say was the, um, when did you know things were going to, not the direction that you were hoping for? What was the moment? Can you remember it clearly? Yeah, I think, yeah, it was it was in 2014. So it took us two years to actually wind the business up after we decided because we wanted to tie it up properly. And we were doing a new collection and both of us were just absolutely exhausted and really, really worried because things were so difficult. And... We just sat there one day and Pam was saying, oh, we better book the flights. And I said, we don't really have the money for those flights. And we were just looking at each other and I said, why are we going? Why are we even doing this? You know, it's awful. We, we 
are so unhappy. We'd had to let a lot of staff go already and we were sort of operating on a much leaner group of people. And, yeah, we just looked at each other and thought, well, we don't have to. No one's actually making us go. What, what will happen if we don't go? And then we started to think about the consequences and then we just started sort of unravelling all the knots and the pieces and from there on actually it just got better wow once we made that decision that's hard decision to make isn't it it's a hard one those those decisions to not do things are that some of the hardest to actually give yourself permission to not do it is the hardest and then you've been defined by it for the last 20 something years and so who are you then if you're not that mm. but yes. i was dying to not be that <laughs> so, dying to not be it and there's a lot of people that would call this a midlife crisis or um, there's a lot of terms for this feeling that you just described because when we get in a rut of doing things our brain's always seeking novelty or something new to do but we don't do that right because it's easier to keep doing what we're good at or known for or built our reputation around so to shift lanes is actually the mm -hmm. hardest thing we do the older we get. Um, yep. I remember saying to Pam the first time we went to Paris, I feel like someone's just put us on a treadmill, like we're mice in a treadmill. And now from now on, our lives aren't our own. We're just dictated by the forces of the fashion world. And we didn't want to ever be that. We always just wanted to make beautiful things and stay little. And but you, can't, you can't. You sort of can't when when you could. We probably should have. But it's very tempting when all these really very, very influential people are encouraging you to grow and you feel like that's what you're supposed to do. I think but we've both gone back now. I we've think both got little microbes. Sorry, Celine. Yeah, I think there's so many people um, that, that uh, would relate to what you're saying. Like in, in your yeah, world and not just you. We're so lucky. Yeah, it goes we all arts and celebrity off. and fame and money. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't imagine being in the public eye like a film star must be. And really you can't jump off because people are just following you everywhere you go. We certainly weren't like that. And once we jumped, it was pretty, I, I wouldn't say easy, but it was a definite path. And we just followed one step in front of the other. And now we've both got independent little micro businesses that are exactly what we would both love to have. And I certainly can't give up my day job for my micro business, which I do with my beautiful partner, Shiloh Engelbrecht. But it is the most joyful thing I've ever done. It's oh, so wonderful. You want to talk about to that? To, what is yeah, your love micro business? <laughs> It's tiny. We're working with um, repurposing mainly. Shiloh's an artist and she has got quite a successful homeware, a very successful homewares business where she prints her art onto linen and then turns it into homeware. It's beautiful. But she came to me when she had been offered to do the uniforms for the Australian team at the Milan Furniture Fair about three years ago. And she had a very, very 
she's got very beautiful ideas and she wanted to make linen shirts for everybody out of her print. Now her print costs about 75 or $95 a meter, depending on where it's printed. And she had three weeks. They didn't have a budget. There were 11 people. She didn't know what size they were going to be. Didn't know if they were men or women. And it just didn't make, it was impossible. And I said, the only way this is going to work is if we somehow already have shirts and we just put your fabric on them somehow. Anyway, we came up with this idea that it should be repurposed. So we bought a whole lot of secondhand men's shirts and we cut some windows out of them and inserted her fabric and it looked fantastic. Yeah. And they were a huge hit at the furniture fair. And from then on, we just, well, we made more of those shirts. And then we just started with this idea that the only new thing that component that could be in anything we made was her printed linen and that we would use that very very frugally partly because it was so expensive but also just because we didn't want to bring all this new textile into the world so our latest project's called knowledge is for cutting and we're marrying the really precise tailoring of of men's shirting again all repurposed with antique bed linen and table linen so we've got the complete opposites, this really super industrial, beautifully finished shirting, and then the handmade lace and the handmade embroidery that mainly was done in the home. And it's just such a, a wonderful combination. And we've had a great time doing it. And we're now working on a project. We always have to have a name for our projects called Ancestor Worship, where people can bring their own family linen and perhaps also a shirt from someone close to them, like a son or a husband, or and we will make them something. It's like oh, a memento. Yeah. We've That's done some crazy. such beautiful ones. We did one recently for a, a woman whose brother had passed away and her mom was also not here anymore, and we made her a dress using her brother's shirt and her tablecloth from her mom. What a great so idea. Beautiful. And what's the business called? It's called Shiloh Lydia. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very inventive. <laughs> but we work out of this gorgeous old studio. It's the most amazing place. It was already Shiloh's studio and it's in Red Hill. You'd never find it down the end of a dead-end street and it's a foundry from the 1870s and it's completely original. There's not a scrap of paint in the whole place. The floorboards have got holes in them, the roof leaks, there's a snake in the rafters, lots of weeds growing up through the windows. It's the most beautiful place I've ever worked. It's so wow. I'll have to come and visit. That sounds amazing. You will. We have to clean everything. Every day we go to work, we have to clean everything before we start because there's possum droppings and dust. And oh, I don't wow. care. It's wonderful. And, uh, well, are you doing that as well as teaching? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, because I'm on my own now and, you know, I I've got grandbabies, but yeah. I don't have a lot of commitments. So, yeah, I'm doing that as well. That that part of my you, research. Must make you so happy. Makes me so happy. The, the idea of just going in there and playing with old embroidered linen is just so, I never get sick of it. And what a great idea for um, recycling and repurposing. There's a lot, there's a big upswing in uh, fashion in that way too, isn't there? huge yeah and you know it makes sense there's all this beautiful raw materials out there that are just being wasted I mean how many people 
have got their family table linen just stuffed away in a drawer, too guilty to give it away. It's much too precious, but they don't use it. Yeah. Amazing. So how'd that idea get born? I don't remember exactly how it started. I think we both love table linen. We both love embroideries. And I honestly don't remember whose idea it was at the beginning to incorporate some lace into the Charlotte's very, very fake. She's really got wild ideas. She's like a magical thinker. Uh-huh. And so perhaps it was her. I really don't remember, but it, they just evolved these ideas. She she just gets so excited and starts talking and showing old pictures. And then before I know where we are, five hours have gone past and we're making something we didn't know we were going to make. So what uh, it, I would say the one thing for you is that uh, you like the discovery process, almost like a scientist, same idea, creative. So when you're being able to be creative is when you're happiest. That's when I'm happiest. And with other people, people are just the the reason that I get up every day. I love, I just love people. I love my relationship with everyone that I know. And I, I like working with somebody else. I wouldn't be nearly as excited to work on my own. I can work on my own. But even teaching, I love being with the people that I'm teaching with and being with the students. It's so joyful to be with all those young, excited minds and to help them to grow. So um, just in the, out of, you know, thinking about the post-pandemic renewal and renaissance as hopefully we're hoping for rather Mm. than the opposite, where would you like to travel to? Oh, well, where I would like the most to travel to is Sicily. I've been wanting to go to Sicily for quite a long time. But where I actually am travelling to this year, Sicily will have to wait, is um, Hawaii. Really? Not somewhere I would have ever picked, but I have very dear, dear friends who are going there for a holiday. And I wanted to go to Sicily with them, but seeing they're already going to Hawaii, I'm going to Hawaii with them now, and then they're going to come to Sicily with me later. Oh, good. Yeah, I love Hawaii. Do you? Oh, I just don't know anything about it. I know. Well, it's hard. I think it's for Australians to go to Hawaii because our beaches here are so good. But I think it's what I love about Hawaii is it's built on volcanic rock. And so I think the energy there is special unfortunately it's very touristy in parts but there are parts that aren't and so it's an indescribable energy of the people I think that I love about the place well that's the most exciting thing that anyone's told me about Hawaii and that makes me much more interested in in what I'm going to see yeah it's yeah it's it's very it's obviously it's um, got a long history but if you go to the places where you find the energy I think you'll you'll and the natural environment there um that's why people live that's what why people are drawn there i think personally i knew that i knew that it was very beautiful but for me traveling is about culture a lot more culture and um, art and and people yeah so be interesting to meet people it's a bit tricky at the moment apparently because of water um but with the pandemic, a lot of people moved there and stuff. But I don't know what's going on there. I just heard that from my daughter. So, <laughs> wow. Does she live there? 
Or no, she's, but she's going to, no, but we've been there a lot because of our America, because living in California, it's a lot, lot of places people go there for their holidays. So, yeah. Um, so what would you say um, you'd like to help? How would you, what do you do seeing you love people, which is wonderful? What would you say to people that are struggling at this time? What can you offer them? Because you've been through everything. You've seen everything. Uh, what would you offer to people as an outside connection? Yeah, what could they do when they're not feeling connected? They struggle with that. What would you offer them as some advice in the, at this time? Just start with, with talking to yourself, the self that you really fundamentally are, if you're well enough to try to figure that out. When I was at my most unwell the only thing that I could do when I rolled out of bed in the morning was either run or swim. And once I worked out that, I, and I wasn't a sporty person, but once I worked out that I could do that and it would actually save me, it made me so much better. And then I was much more able to engage with the world. I don't know because I'm very lucky. You know, I had a huge support network of people and I, I'm actually looking after, oh, vicariously looking after a, a very dear young friend at the moment who lives in Darwin, who is completely isolated. And I know that the voice on the end of the phone is what saves him every day. And he rings me a lot, several times a day. And sometimes we just have a chat and sometimes he can hardly even talk. And I just jabber on about what I'm doing or I do the washing up and talk to him about the soap suds. And it doesn't really matter what the conversation is about. It doesn't have to be serious and it doesn't have to be deep and earth shattering. Just keep that connection because if you don't have people, then you really, really struggle. Yes. And I think that giving back to others yeah. is the key that people may not realize is such a, just because you have a lot of friends and other people might struggle doesn't make you better it just makes you lucky and everyone has a different starting field and so being able to reach back to pull up others is the greatest gift you can which is not very uh it's kind of selfish gift you can give to it yourself. is sort of selfish i know sometimes i feel guilty because i love talking to to my friend and when i think about why i love it it's because i know i'm helping and I, but also I'm getting a lot of insight. I mean, whoever you talk to, you always learn something. And my friend's 35, he's the same age as my son, and his world is very, very different to mine. And I'm learning such a lot about the way life is for somebody that age. And I'm learning things about my own son just reflectively because he's the same age and, and sort of in the same kind of group. Absolutely. And I, I have found that really, really rewarding. Yeah. So the people like who aren't well, I hope that you have somebody that you can talk to and you don't have to make intelligent conversation because when you're sick, you can't. You just can't think of anything. Yeah. Just pick up the phone and talk to somebody and hope that there's somebody there who will ring you back. I know my friend, when he can't talk to me, he often calls Lifeline just so that there's a voice on the end of the phone. And uh, my mother gave me some great advice too when I was in a similar situation, you know, in 2013, I couldn't get out of bed. 
and she would just say, "Put a just get up and put some perfume on your wrist." Wow! Like because for some people the idea of rolling out to swim and run is just outside the realm of possibility, but people yeah. are asking for the very first step to that to getting out of bed, and sometimes it's just. And we, I just wrote about this in the Body Soul magazine, actually. If you, and you may be able to say this to your friend too, is just look out the window and, and as soon as you open your eyes, rather than grabbing a phone and thinking of three things you're grateful for, immediately turns the brain outside yourself outward, um, yeah. allows the brain to start to latch. From a brain perspective, this is, allows the brain to start latching onto something good moves it forward and from a brain perspective rather than from a you perspective too so they're these simple little tricks but they go a long way to retraining the brain actually one of the things I do with my friend is sometimes he's still in bed when we speak and I say "Mm, I'm drinking coffee oh my goodness it tastes so good you've got an espresso machine haven't you why don't you just you know hop out of bed and put it on and get that amazing smell. And then before you know it, you'll have a cup of coffee. And I've talked him around Woolies because he couldn't go shopping. And I've talked him into the car and to the supermarket and around the supermarket saying, oh, do you think you need any soy milk? What about honey? And it sounds so banal. And I'm sure for a lot of people who want to help somebody, that would never be a way of, of thinking to help them you think that you've got to have that big deep conversation but honestly sometimes just helping them to clean their teeth is enough absolutely absolutely and I think that's the bit we talk about the only way we can go is forward whereas if you go into something deep and start talking about the reasons for too long the brain gets stuck and it likes those things more than it likes the harder things which is moving forward Yeah. (laughs) yeah that's so true and that's but a new chemical thing. Forward. When you have moved forward, isn't that a wonderful thing? And when you yeah. can actually sit somewhere and look back and see that you have actually progressed. Yes, and that's the key the too, isn't it? Yeah, he was just talking to me and then he just stopped and he said, I'm actually getting better, aren't I? And I said, yeah, you are. And it's not a straight line. That's the other thing. You don't just go from being sick to being well. You, you have all kinds of up and downs along the way and you have to be prepared for that too. Yes, and especially the pandemic threw a bit of a bolt in the line for lots of young people. Yes, yeah, that's true. But um, thank you for doing that. Um, I hope he listens to the podcast. Um, I wish him well too and I'm glad he's moving forward. Not easy um, to do, but it's really worthwhile because everyone deserves to be happy, healthy and strong. And that's really the aim of our podcast, isn't it, Lydia, to help people have the courage to live daily? Yeah, yes, that's right. Just all the little things, the little tiny daily rituals, I think, are the most important. Yeah, starting in the morning is a really good one. Like having a killer morning routine is really essential from a brain perspective to move forward. And, uh, you know, what you're putting your brain's attention to is key no matter what's happened in your life, you can direct your brain. You are the boss of your brain. And that's the key message that we have on the Thriving Minds podcast. And you can also direct people to different avenues of learning and listening now, like through podcast platforms and 
there's so and visuals youtube videos there's so many places now that we never had in, you know back in our day for example there's True. many more. i mean yes that, that's right you had to go to a psychology text and they but that also hasn't moved forward completely yet either so the neuroscience platforms uh, the new knowledge we can see inside the brain now we couldn't before so that's also disrupting all of these spaces so we want to keep promoting brain health and fitness in Australia and like reaching out to people when we're well that, so we can help other people do the same thing, offering Lifeline, as you say. I see Lifeline in everybody. And um, thank you for everything you've done for Brisbane, for Queensland, and obviously outside of Australia in the fashion world and now teaching our young generation that they can be resilient, start their own businesses. Um, thank you well, for doing I just that. feel... I feel just so lucky and also so grateful that I that I have had all of that experience and that now I can share it. Yes, they're so lucky to and the bad. Would you like to leave a one last message of one of the probably the greatest lessons that you've learned in your life so far with the audience? People are everything. I love that message. It's true. Who are we without our people? Well, we're, we're the a, a renewing, rewilding earth. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Potentially. But I am with you. I think that people are everything and our, and our world lost that vision and hopefully the pandemic has maybe um, shown, shine a light on that again. Yeah. I think that's really true. Selena, it's just been so lovely to talk to you. And you Thanks too. for letting me wrap it on. No, it was wonderful. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Keep sharing it. Um, we're very lucky to have you. And um, we look forward to seeing what's next in the Shiloh, Lydia world too. I think that's really exciting. And I'm looking that's... forward to seeing your new, your new brain photos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's such a great Thanks gift to the world that people can bring back their ancestors like that. That's such a great yeah. idea. It, and to reuse yeah, all the it's been very, very rewarding. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Lydia. I look forward to seeing you um, at QUT and elsewhere in the design world and teaching. Yeah, we need to have a coffee one day soon, hey? Yes, we will. All right. Thanks, Selena. Thank you.